0: Hi, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We're in the Summer of Psalms series, and in this episode, we'll explore the commencement of this revolutionary text. The Psalms is a significant book that plays a crucial role in the journey of faith. Today, we'll focus on the initial Psalm of this book, which is Psalm one. The aim of this message is to illustrate the appropriate method to approach this book. Today's episode, Two Paths. Here's Associate Pastor, JC Thompson.
1: Hey, uh, I'm so glad to be here. We're in the second week of our series called Summer in the Psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. That way it wasn't hard for me to find. Uh, It's right at the beginning. Our theme verse today is Psalm 34, 8, which just says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That word blessed is an interesting one. Now, if you've been uh, this social media thing got started when I was in college, which is fun now to see uh, (laughs) how different it is. Um, But this 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 uh, hashtag blessed has been around a long time. I don't know if you've all seen it before, if you've used it before. Uh, And so this is this is this uh, this word is a a funny one. and so I thought I'd do some research this week. Uh, I went on Twitter and Facebook and I searched up hashtag blessed. And I thought, what what's out there? What are people feeling blessed about? And so here's here's what I saw. Um, I saw somebody this week post about a race that they had gotten. Uh, I saw somebody post about, um, they had gotten a volleyball scholarship, a full ride bo- volleyball scholarship. It's exciting. Uh, somebody saw, uh, a sail on some shoes. (laughs) Somebody had just poured their morning cup of coffee and someone was taking a walk down the beach and they unexpectedly saw some dolphins. And so all of those words together that's what the, the kind of the definition this week in, in my feed of what hashtag blessed look like. Um, and so what's, what's always interesting when you come to these things uh, and you walk through what do they really mean? You have to look at the scriptures and the scriptures definition of those things. And blessed is a term or a phrase or a word that's used a lot in the scriptures. Um, but it feels like kind of what the culture's definition of that is and the biblical definition are very different. See, in the culture that's discipling us, and I'm going to say that again, the culture, you know, hopefully you know this by now. Hopefully this is second nature to you. The culture is discipling you. It's trying to teach you how to believe, what to think about the world, how the world truly is. Uh, You know, one of the things I always laugh at is like, everyone is so angry on social media, but then when you interact with people in life, only some of them are angry. and then, you know, you, it's just regular. So like, but they're discipling you. Everyone is angry. Everything is horrible. We should all be alarmed and planning for imminent destruction of literally everything. Like that's, that's the discipleship that's going into social media. And yet at the same token, there's this hashtag blessed and you just go, you can, it's just like blessings are everything. Everything is a blessing. Like there's no real distinction of what that looks like. Most of the time, these uh, blessings that the culture talks about are material in nature, or there's some benefit to self. Now that's not all the time, but a lot of times the majority of these people who are posting about these things, that's what they're posting about. How is this helping me? Or this is something that's helping me. Well, the Bible talks about what it means to be blessed. And there's a lot, so I can't cover all of them, but I wanted to give you kind of a smattering of what the Bible talks about when it talks about a blessed person is about or does these things. Here's some of the things that they said. Blessed, blessed men and women are those who fear doing wrong, those who help the poor, those who wait on the Lord's help and don't try to figure out things on their own. Blessed are those people who honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Blessed is the one who's disciplined by the Lord. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. It also mentions that people who remain steadfast during trials are blessed. Those who have died in Jesus Christ are blessed and the lamb invites those blessed people to a marriage meal at the end of time. Today in this week of Psalms, we're going to be walking through the beginning of this world altering book, a book that is about devotion and worship and song and poetry and prayer that Christians for generations have relied upon. It's an important book when it comes to our faith. Now, I must confess to you, you probably look at my face and you immediately think to yourself, this is a man of refined taste who loves poetry. Uh, Well, you would be wrong. Uh, Poetry is not in my skill set. And so oftentimes I struggle with that. You know, I really have struggled with the idea of, you know, you hear these kind of very fancy ways of talking about the Psalms. And then when I read them and I get the raw part, like I I don't have trouble when I'm angry or frustrated or hurting or suffering to dive into the Psalms and resonate with the authors there. But when things are going good and I'm trying to like grow my devotion, it feels like these you know, these being songs, like if I sing these out loud, it would not sound great. Now, some of that's just my voice, and some of it's these words don't rhyme, like the meter's off, like what? what's going on here? Now, I will tell you, in seminary school, this helped me a little bit. You learn a little bit of Hebrew, and then you realize, oh, these Hebrew words and phrases, they do rhyme. That is why they are songs, and the meter does match up, and there is an intention of the author to make them sound like a good song, but oftentimes the English translation doesn't do that justice. But I think what we can learn from this book is two things. One, we can always find a community of faith in the Psalms that prays to God with uh, this raw sense of authenticity desiring to have God come from heaven to earth in their life, that's one thing. And then the second thing is, and this is really a a quote um, that I got from the guy who, the doctor who taught my seminary class in the Psalms, he really says it in this way. He says this, the Psalms are thoroughly biblical. And by them, the people of God through the ages have had their understanding of the Bible's master narrative deepened, their faith in the truths that flow from it strengthened." their behavioral instincts sharpened and all this comes not through lecture, but poetry. See, I think what the authors of the Psalms are trying to get at is they're trying to move our hearts. Now, somebody who is not an artist or a musician, that's not a language I'm always comfortable with, this heart moving language. And at the same time, I do think there's truth in beauty, either in art, song, or even in nature, truly moves our heart in ways that lecture information, motivation cannot. I think that's true. The goal of the Psalms is not this emotional flailing. You know, like if you, one of my favorite memes is Kermit the Frog, and he's got, everything's on fire behind him, and he's like throwing his, you know, his arms and his head everywhere. Like oftentimes that's how I feel about my life. Everything's in chaos and what do we do? Um, But the Psalms aren't that. They're not this emotionally flailing in front of God. That's not what they're designed for. It's authors really trying to take deep biblical truths in a raw and honest way moving your heart to help you understand who God truly is and how he relates to fallen human beings. And they're trying to convince you not with information but with beauty. And I think it's effective. Now today in Psalm chapter 1 we have what's called a didactic psalm. Say that, didactic. Didactic. Say it again. I feel like I taught you something today, it's very good. No, a didactic psalm is what's called a teaching psalm. The goal of these psalms were to instruct you generally about the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, Psalm 19 are examples of that. The psalmist is really trying to teach the readers something. Psalm 1, who I believe, we don't know the author for sure, but JC is going to give you his opinion. My opinion is that David, who compiled, wrote the majority of these psalms. He also curated psalms from... People in the past. So Josh taught last week, he talked about Psalm ninety. I believe David would have gotten that Psalm from Moses' writing and put it in the Psalm hymn book. Well, I believe as David passed, as he died, I believe other authors came and tried to kind of figure out what is David doing with this collection of writings. What end is he trying to accomplish? And I believe some of these psalms are written to kind of direct the reader into a pathway. And teaching you and instructing you how to receive these works of literature. And Psalm 1 is an example of that. I believe the author in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is trying to instruct us as readers how to properly enter the Psalms. In other words, who are these Psalms for and how do we most greatly benefit from them? That's what he's trying to teach us. So today, I just want to show you three things that I, I see, that I observe in this Psalm chapter one. The first thing is this, two paths, two paths. Now I'm using the NASB, but we'll, the majority of our text, I'll be reading from the NLT today, but I like this translation in the NASB. It just says this, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers." This set of three statements about the, what, what the blessed man is not to do is kind of shocking. Honestly, when you look at how uh, culture teaches us what a blessed life looks like, most often it's about things that we can accomplish, earn, or do. Now there are some things that culture tells us to avoid, like gluten, And sugar and working too hard. Culture's teaching us that those are horrible for you, okay? I just want to sit down with them and have a burger and a donut uh, (laughs) after a long hard day of work. Um, But the reality is this, the scripture is clear in verse 1, the blessed man or woman makes a life of avoiding evil. The blessed man or woman makes a life of avoiding evil. Now it uses three words meant to be a progression. Walk, stand, and sit. It's meant to be a progression. So to walk, if you've got this idea of walking in the presence of evil, you kind of have this idea, like if if y'all can imagine, it's like a billboard when you drive. Like when you drive by, you may see a billboard and you go, oh, and then you, it doesn't affect your day. You're not thinking about it anymore, but you notice it. Okay. So this first picture is that when it's about people who are practicing evil, they're instructing people in how um, how, how to live, what the world is really like. You're walking by and you may notice someone in the street being instructed in a way that is opposed to the things of God. So you're walking, um, you're walking in this way. And... Next, after that, this idea of standing would just mean that you start to linger a little bit as you walk. Imagine if you see a billboard and it's so interesting to you that you find uh, a way to make your route pass along it to see that billboard again. Or you're following someone online and you figure out a way to make their uh, post show up in your feed more. Um, or you're walking along the street and you hear a conversation and rather just walking by minding your own business, you linger to hear what's really going on. There's an interest there, there's a curiosity there, and you're willing to spend more of your time, energy, and resources in hearing what they have to say. At last, to sit in the seat of scoffers means that you have decided to join their table and take a seat as they openly mock the ways of God. It's a progression. The psalmist is trying to illustrate to you, the reader, that who you gather with, who you listen to, and who you seek to emulate your life after, matters deeply. It's why parents, we spend so much time when our kids get into older elementary school, middle school, and high school, asking questions like, who's that? Who are you hanging out with? Hey, when I was in Carline today, you seem to be talking to this person a long time. Who's that person? Or hey, there's a pretty girl over there that I saw you talking to. Who's that? Like we are asking these questions because we know the biblical truth that the company you keep has the potential to corrupt your character. And the psalmist is illustrating that the number one thing you should be thinking, out, thinking about as a blessed person is how are you in your life purposely, intentionally avoiding evil? What's it look like? What boundaries are in place? What obstacles are you putting in your pathway to make sure that you don't get sucked into, you don't willingly involve yourself in evil that goes against the law of the Lord? And I'll tell you this, adults your kids get a little older, they'll start looking at you and who you hang out with. And they'll start asking you the question, hey, who's that person? What are you you hanging out with them so much for? They seem like they're a horrible influence on you. Why are you doing that? And they should ask that question. They should be able to ask you about these things in your life. And the question I'll just ask you, all of you in this room, adult, teenager, young adult, whoever you are, young child, If you look over your life this past week and you think about who you spent time with, how many of the people that you spent time with are someone that you would actively say in public around the people you love the most, this is someone I am trying to be like in life. I am trying to be more like this person how many of those people you spent time with this week are leading you closer to Christ and are helping shape your biblical worldview? It's probably not as best a percentage as what we would like. The author continues in verse two, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Now, if you compare this picture to the one that we just saw, if you could imagine this worldview being proliferated and you kind of walk by and then you stand to linger and then you sit down, the psalmist is giving you a comparison. The blessed man is one who avoids evil and invests themselves in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it. They think about it. They process it. They pray about it day and night. It's still a way of life. This is still the constant lingering that we're talking about but it's about a philosophy of living. Now, this word in the Hebrew, meditate, actually means to mutter. Now, I didn't like that when I'm studying this passage because if you're like me and you think about people who mutter, it's generally not a positive picture. It's either an old guy who's about to fall asleep on the couch or somebody who's drank a little too much or somebody who's got a mental condition that hopefully they're seeking help with, right? Like nobody is thinking to themselves, you know, well, we mutter when we're at our most healthy place in life. Um, Nobody thinks that. And yet, as I'm trying to process through, this is a good thing. The author's trying to teach us this is a good thing. What does this mean? Here's the only thing I can think of in my own life experience. Now, this doesn't happen anymore. Like teenagers, y'all don't write notes. Do y'all write notes to each other in class? Y'all just text each other. Y'all still write, anybody still write notes, teenagers? Anybody? I didn't think so. Well, that was a big deal when I was a teenager. Uh, You would write notes to each other, specifically people you really liked, uh, often of the opposite gender that you were trying to get a date with. Um, So you'd write real sweet things in these notes. But when you received one of those notes, man, you would linger over that text. You'd find a way to put it next to your bedside table. You'd process through the words. It was so special to you. You really didn't want anybody to know technically, but you also wanted the whole world to know at the same time. It was so personal. It was so enriching. It was so wonderful. In fact, even today, when I get text messages from my wife that are encouraging, I'm lingering over that. How does she think that about me? Has she seen me? She obviously knows who I am, right? There's no way that she thinks this is true. And I'm just, I'm just, man, I'm lingering over those words, those phrases. If you've ever had a mentor in your life who said a phrase or a thing that just has struck you that you think about often. Like my mentor, one of the things that he said to me is uh, questions are the pivot point of growth. Questions are the pivot point of growth. And so if you're around me, if you work with me, you know, it's, it's probably a little awkward. I love asking questions, sometimes blunt and direct and what feels like horrible questions, but the question that everybody needs to ask, right? And so it's something I'm, I'm mulling over, I'm thinking about. Here's, a, here's another picture. As I'm thinking about that, I'm going, that kind of resonates with me. Anybody gotten a letter like that or a text message like that before that you just mull over? Anybody? Okay, come on, do y'all live in the world? Come on, Somebody, somebody, somebody needs to move y'all's heart a little bit. Husbands, go home and write a letter to your wife today so she feels this inside of her heart, okay? Anyway, come on, guys, y'all seen a chick flick at least, right? Okay. Man, I'm I'm talking to dead hearts today. What's going on out there? What happened this week? Anyway, anyway. So saying all that, the best picture, though, that I, I got of this actually comes from the scriptures. It came from Jesus himself. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness before he started his earthly ministry, what came out of his mouth? The Scriptures, when he was challenged, critiqued, tried to be tricked, what came out of his mouth? The Scriptures did. When he's being crucified on the cross, the penultimate moment of his life here on earth, what came out of his mouth? The Scriptures. In fact, most scholars believe he quoted Psalm 1 all the way up until we know the most clear uh, quotation, Psalm 22, he's quoting the book of Psalms from beginning until his life ends. Uh, One pastor said this, he said, when Jesus got cut, he bled scripture. When Jesus got cut, he bled scripture. If Jesus, the son of God was that invested in the scriptures and the law, how much more do, do we as feeble human beings need to be invested in the scriptures? When you cut, do you bleed the word of the Lord? Or do you bleed, like me, emotional flailing all over the place? See, the one thing that I keep coming back to in this passage is this. There are devotion, what we worship, what we're devoted to, and our identity are inseparably linked to one another. We are identified by what we are devoted to. I'm going to say that again. We are identified by what we are devoted to. So, the question we need to ask ourselves is what am I devoted to? Another way to say it is what do I go on muttering about when everyone's around me? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, in a passage called the Shema, which was instruction from Moses to the group of people on how to raise their family, how to live in a way that honors God, how to instruct their children. Here is what Moses said Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you are on the road, when you are going to bed, and when you are getting up. Do you notice a similar picture that the psalmist gave us? Walk, stand, sit. When you're on the road, when you go to bed, when you wake up, this is this muttering picture that the psalmist is trying to get us to see. Our lives must be centered around the word of the Lord. So I just want you to take a moment and think through your devotion. I want you to evaluate yourself. What did you spend the most time last week thinking about? what did you spend the most time last week thinking about? Did you spend more time on the rock solid truths of God's character and the reality of what that means for your life or were you more concerned about a worldly way to fix your problems? How much time did you spend muttering about all the blessings you have in your life in comparison to the time you spent muttering about all the things you don't have in your life? Now, I want to give you a practical application today that I think will be helpful to our church. Up here on the screen, I want you guys this week, take your phones out. Yes, a pastor is asking you to take out your phone. If you're watching us online, take your phone out, or if you're watching this on your computer, put a... a, calendar, invite in your computer. But on Wednesday, our students leave for camp. Now, if you don't know this, what's the strategy behind us doing camp? Are we just going away so that we can do uh, fun things with your students and they'll have this momentous lifetime? No. In fact, the time that we spend for a full year with a student who comes regularly to church is the same amount of time that we'll get to spend with them if they go to camp in one week's time, we'll get one year's worth of time investment in a student. It's a big deal. So what are, we, what, are we, what are we doing? At seven o'clock starting on Wednesday night until Saturday, they will have large group teaching and worship. Well, they'll be talking through the gospel and its implications in their life. At 8.30 p.m., provided that these uh, youth pastors get done on time, they'll, uh, which you could be praying for that too, they'll have a small group time of sharing with each other about how this impacts their life, how they're going to apply it and further Bible study. And then at 945 in the morning, they'll be doing a Bible study, uh, helping to, uh, again, apply the truths of what they're learning at camp. So I'm just asking you, will you commit this week, if you could be muttering something, will you commit this week to be muttering some prayers for our students as they're away at camp? Will y'all commit to that with me this week? Okay, that was half-hearted commitment. I'm looking at all of you. Our students, don't complain about culture and young people if you're not willing to get on, the, get on your knees and pray that God does a work in them, okay? You hear my challenge as a pastor right now who works with young people? Y'all hear me? Are you willing to commit to pray for our young people that God would move in their hearts this week? Yes. Wonderful, thank you. That is going to be a wonderful thing for our students and their families and our leaders. Thank you for committing to do that with us. In addition to the two paths presented in Psalm chapter one, we also see two pictures, two pictures. Verse three, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Now, trees are a very common picture in the scriptures. The psalmist wants you to think back specifically to one picture of trees and that's in the Garden of Eden. You get this description of the garden that there's all kinds of fruit, all kinds of trees, wildlife, animals, everything's flourishing in there. And then the boundary of that garden are rivers, giving the boundary of this Garden of Eden, everything that everything needs into in, in that garden. They have everything they need to survive. The river is supplying the benefit to the garden. It's where Adam and Eve were, and everything they needed had this bountiful supply of fruit, animal life. Like I'm just imagining like it looks like, it feels like in reading the scripture narrative in Genesis that animals are not trying to attack them. I cannot imagine coming face to face with a legitimate tiger, not one that wears pajamas at football games, but a legitimate tiger and thinking to myself, what up bro? And not being scared you know, scared that this thing's about to maul me. Like I, I just can't imagine that. That is the picture we have of the Garden of Eden. Everyone's at peace. Every, everybody has what they need and it is constantly flourishing. Everything's organic. There's no pesticides. You don't have to weed the garden. Like it, it, just, it just is growing the way that it was meant to grow. And we see the psalmist give a progression in our life as a follower of Christ as well. First, we're planted. Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit entering into our life when we are saved, when we're rescued from our own sin. We're planted. We're a new creation in Christ, according to Corinthians. So we're planted by a stream of water that will never relent. It will give us everything we need. But then we bear fruit. And then after that, our our leaves never wither. I got to say that slow. Our leaves never wither. Now that that last one is shocking to me and we'll get there, but I just want to talk through the progression in the maturity of a believer. Once we become planted, we we get we get involved in this family of God, we get a new identity, we get new desires, and as we start to live in that new identity, as we seek to grow in our character, as we become ethical people who seek to do good for those around us, which the scriptures say will happen to us if we're a follower of Christ, we begin to to do what the scriptures say is bearing fruit. Now that idea sounds great, but oftentimes when we talk about fruit, we really talk about it like it's just for us. But the idea of these trees, these trees weren't growing fruit for their own benefit. The trees were growing fruit to be able to offer that fruit to other people. And it's the same for us as Christians. We don't grow in character and become mature believers for just our own benefit. We do that for the benefit of others. We should be providing fruit for other people. Now, the scriptures are clear. That fruit primarily is for the church. The church should get the primary fruitfulness of our life as a follower of Christ. And we share it with each other. But here's the the reality. If all of us in the church are trees and we're all bearing fruit and we're all sharing that with other, well, guess what? There's a lot of excess fruit to go around. Well, then we got to have a farmer's market, Right? And we got to offer our bountiful harvest of fruit to those who are not in the church, to those who are outside of the church and share with them the hope of the gospel. How do your trees grow so much fruit? As they look inside and they go, you know, the people inside that building, they're charitable, they're loving, they're generous. They, they seek to honor the truth. They, they tell the truth, but not with an agenda. They tell the truth because it's the truth. And that's all they need to tell you. They're people of peace and joy. Even when things are not going well for them, even when they're criticized, it seems that they're at peace. How do I I get that? How how do I get that fruit? And it's when we share the gospel. And fruit, these trees are meant not only to provide fruit, but this picture of the leaves not withering is also this idea of shade. Now y'all know this right now, it's hot outside. Y'all go to the pool and one of the first things as an adult you're thinking about if you don't have young children, if you have young children, you're going, what am I, where am I have to sit to make sure I got to fish one of these out of the water? How can I get there quickly? If you got a little older children, you're thinking to yourself, where's the shady spot as my children are playing or as I'm going to sit here for a while, where am I going to get some shade at? If you go to an outdoor event, you're going, do I need to take an umbrella like I take to the beach? Like how, how do I get to the shade? That's one of the first things you're processing through. Trees offer that shade to people as they're burned by the world. We offer the opportunity for people to come and receive comfort from us, that there's another way to live. And listen, I I need to say this to you because the scriptures teach us this. This is not true in our material world. You get taught in business school all the time that healthy organizations grow, and I think that's true. But what they don't teach is that there's always a cap to growth. It's how growth works. So in other words, your kid's not going to end up eight and a half feet tall. There's a cap to their growth, right? We all experience this. Some of us hit our cap earlier than others, right? But the reality is physical organisms have caps to growth. Christians do not have caps on their spiritual growth. I'm gonna say that to you again. Physical organisms have caps on their growth. Christians do not have caps on their spiritual growth. But here's what happens. You have probably the most to offer the world when you get older. The scriptures are very clear about this. You have more to offer as an older person than you do as a younger person. Now, provided you're living a life of wisdom. If you're living the life of a fool, you don't have much to offer anybody, including yourself. But if you're a follower of Christ who's seeking to obey him and growing in godly maturity and character, the older you get, the more fruitful you become. That's the reality of the scriptures, but you're battling against your physical body is telling you, I don't have as much to offer and you've got to figure out which one you're going to believe is true. You're going to have to believe that. You know, I sat, uh, I, I sat uh, this week meeting with somebody who's a little older than me, who's got kids who some of them have graduated, some are getting to that point. And the wisdom that he's able to share with me as my kids are 11 and six years old are so helpful. You know, I'm asking questions about, you know, my kid is struggling in this area. Was that unique to you? Was it, did you struggle with that? Is that your wife's struggle? And there's so much benefit to me in hearing his perspective on those things. But as you get older your physical body again is hitting its cap and you feel that and you got to choose what am I going to believe now it doesn't mean you don't pace yourself and it doesn't mean that you don't take care of yourself but what I'm advocating to you is oftentimes we put our spiritual influence on the back burner because our physical body is breaking down and I'm asking you I'm begging you as an older person who is wise and mature in character please don't stop offering what you have to us in fact we need it more now that you're older than we needed your body before now i want to give you a picture of this because this is cool and i'm up here so i get to do the cool stuff so here we go these are mangrove trees in puerto rico i recently got to go to puerto rico on vacation with my wife and our best friends Uh, We've been married for 15 years, so we took an anniversary trip there. We did not take our children, and that's how you know it's a vacation, okay? It was awesome. Puerto Puerto Rico, these are mangrove trees, uh, and and their roots can go up up to 20 feet down into the water, attaching themselves to the seafloor right? Now these, these particular mangrove trees in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico houses three of the world's five bioluminescent bays, which just means that when you get in the water at nighttime, if there's no, uh, moonlight, you can see essentially the water glow as movement is made. There's these organisms that light up. The mangrove trees take the salt water in and they spit out the salt back into the water. As of today, um, laboratories cannot duplicate what is happening in these bioluminescent bays in nature, okay? But what I always notice about these mangrove trees is these trees really only need one root to actually survive. But once they find a source of nutrients and supply, they're not comfortable with just one root. They just keep throwing roots out. You know, this is the picture of what I want you to get from our theme verse today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, once you put your roots in as a follower of Christ and you become planted by the Holy Spirit, you don't just stop and you're like, that's all I need. I'm good forever. Uh, No, you, you find ways to put more of your life, more of your mind, more of your heart, more of your physical labors into the way, the kingdom, the life of God. And you just keep getting more and more and more and more. And what you notice over time is the people who have fully invested their life into the river of life, what you notice is their life's different than yours. The people who devote more of their life to the ways of God experience more of the blessings of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have eternal security because we've been planted. That's 100% 100% true, non-shaken fact that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we've got security. But I just don't want to be planted and I don't want to just bear fruit. I want my leaves to never wither. I want to look at the end of my life and go, I am better today than I was in my 20s and 30s. And the only way you do that is you keep putting more into Jesus. And here's the, here's the reality. And I know y'all think about this all the time. You're thinking about, what am I going to get the most return on my investment for? There is never going to be a moment where your investment into the things of God, into his life, into what he offers, where you will come back with a deficit. You will always get a return on the investment you make with him, always, without a shadow of a doubt. That market is never shaky. That market is secure it will always provide benefit to you. But those strong trees are not the only picture that we have. We also have a picture in verse four of the chaff. Verse four says this, but not the wicked, they are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Now this picture, most of us are not farmers anymore. Okay. But this idea wheat grows on a piece of straw at the top of it is the grain head. The outer covering of that grain is called the chaff. And how they would harvest it is they they'd pick it. They would usually with some sort of sharp object, they'd cut it all down, they'd gather it into uh, a bundle, and then they would drop it on what's called the threshing floor, it's some sort of flat surface, usually made of, of stone. And you would either by hand with two sticks tied together by a chain or a rope called a flail, beat that wheat on the floor, or you'd have an animal usually dragging a very heavy stone behind it to crush the wheat on the threshing floor. See, this is a very common picture in the scriptures, but the process of harvesting grain is that. The last part of that process is after it's crushed, either by hand or by this stone dragged by an animal, you would take what's called a winnowing fork. You can imagine a pitchfork it's similar to that not exactly the same but similar and you would take up what had been crushed and you you I mean you literally you throw it up in the air and then the wind takes the waste product the the part the chaff that's indigestible to humans and it blows it away and you just watch it it's fun to watch it's not as fun to do it's hard work but it's fun it's fun to watch you literally and that's what you do you pick it up you throw it What's left is not waste product. What's left is the harvest of grain. What the psalmist is trying to explain is that these two paths, these two pictures, we have one picture of strength, security, stability, that's benevolent offerings of fruit help the world. The other one is a waste product that'll be thrown away. When the harvest time comes, now church, listen to me. The wheat and the tares, which is a parable that you've heard Jesus talk about before, the wheat and the chaff, always together until the moment of the end times come and they're separated by Jesus. We're always together with them. We're always loving. We're always praying that they're grain. We're always praying that they're bearing fruit. We're praying and asking and sharing and doing as much as we can. But until that time comes, we're all together. In this world. And what the scripture is trying to explain to these folks who may not be aware that their wicked lifestyle is going to pass away, it's trying to explain that, listen, when hard times come, there's no support, there's no stability there, there's no anchor for you, as the scriptures talk about Jesus being for us in Hebrews. See, often we think about these two pictures, and the only thing we think about is this convictional strength as a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm convicted, I'm, I'm immovable. I'm staying on those things that are true. and I, That is one portion of the picture. But the other is in the midst of people around me who I may or may not know are chaff, I'm supposed to be a tree that's providing shelter, security, and fruit to help them see that there is a right path to live, but it may not be the path that they're on. I really want us to grasp this. My life as a follower of Jesus is for the benefit of others and not just for myself. My life with Jesus is for the benefit of others and not just myself. Your life is not your own. So we shouldn't be satisfied. We shouldn't get to the point where it's like, I've learned enough about Jesus. I'm good. There's nothing else for me to learn and grow in that we should constantly be placing our roots down. When we sing, when we serve, when we live transparently in front of others, our aim is to show someone this is the blessed life. This is the blessed life. How is your life providing life to other people? How are you sharing the life and story of Jesus with others? Lastly, this psalmist gives us two perishings. Two perishings, verse 5. I know that's an awkward word. Let's just pretend I'm a poet when I came up with it, okay? Verse five, this is from the NASB, I'll read. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a stark and chilling passage about the finality of human life. We don't like to talk about it, but we're all gonna die unless Christ comes back. Some of us hopefully have already died once to ourselves. but we will have physical death that we'll have to come to terms with. The scriptures are clear, Psalm one is clear. There are two ways. There's the way of the wicked, which mocks the things of God. There's the way of the blessed man or woman who lives devoted, growing in uh, character, providing their life for others that in the judgment will be good. But these people who live their life selfishly, who live their life sinfully apart from the law of God, they'll get exactly what they wanted to get all along. They'll be their own God, separated from God eternally. They'll live life on their own terms They won't be singing with us. They won't be delighting with the church or enjoying the presence of their Savior. They won't be in our church service in eternity. And if you've had interactions with them, people who are opposed to the ways of God, that's not what they would want anyway. They see God in a particular way that's not truthful or accurate. They live their lives to satisfy their own desires and that's exactly what they'll get according to Psalm 1 that way of life ends up being blown away in judgment and there's no way of standing according to Psalm chapter 1 verse 5 and 6. Now the hope is that some in this room can share the gospel, can live in front of them, can love them, can explain who Jesus is to them in a way where they won't face that judgment. The hope is they begin to experience what the psalmist describes, a tree that provides fruit to their life that gives and offers shelter and shade in a time of discouragement and suffering. Our hope is that their eyes are open as the scriptures say that the scales would fall off. They'd be open to the gospel offer of Jesus Christ for their life and that they would accept. Man, I hope and pray for that. I hope and pray that everyone in this room experiences life in Christ and not life on their own. But this is a reality. We don't like to talk about it I have no desire to emotionally manipulate you, but it is my job as a pastor to tell you the truth. Judgment is coming. And there are two options. Option one is the way of the Lord. And option two is any other way than the way of the Lord. And I'm praying that Brookwood becomes a place where there are many trees planted that are able to offer fruit to our community, shelter and shade in difficult times, and they speak and honor and praise the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you in here, you may be hearing this, this passage, these last two verses, and you're f- feeling fearful. I don't wanna remove that fear from you. In fact, the scriptures teach us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes we domesticate what the scriptures say to us so much that we have no room for healthy fear of God. There's only one way to gain righteousness in this life. And it's not through church attendance or obedience to the law. It's not by honoring the Sabbath. The only way to truly gain the righteousness that gets you access with the Father is by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, repenting of your way of living and believing that who Jesus is in his life, death, burial and resurrection is the only way to be satisfied for the way that you've chosen to live up until this point. Only through Jesus Christ can you be made right with God. Romans 3.24 says it this way. Now Romans 3.23 teaches us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then that's sometimes the only passage that we memorize of that chapter. But Verse 24 says this, Yet God, in the midst of everyone being sinfully fallen, God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. God, by his grace, not by your earning, freely because of his love, not your loveliness makes us right through his spirit and in his sight. And it's nothing we can do on our own. How did he accomplish all this? Through Jesus's obedience to the law in fulfilling the law and the prophets by sacrificing his body and blood on the cross and being raised from the dead. It's the only way to life with God. It's the only way to the blessed life that this psalmist talks about. In order to enter into these psalms in the proper way, We must, we must understand that this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Only those with that understanding can truly understand the depths of what the Psalms offer to us as believers. For those of you who are in Christ, this is a a call to obedience. What has Christ been moving in you lately? What has the Holy Spirit been asking you to do? Do that today. Obey without hesitation. And I'm thankful God has shown you the gospel. He's brought people around you to love you. He's constantly finding ways to encourage your faith and to grow it, including today. He's watching over your life and he provides you protection and blessing. But he'll never make you obey. But he will offer and he's offering again today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and I'm thankful for you. And I ask you Lord, as we continue to live in a world that is telling us what is true and untrue, God, I ask you to help us to be so comfortable with your word and law that it is just always on the tip of our tongue an answer to how the world is teaching us to live. Help us as followers of Christ, not just to know what is in the scriptures, but for it to become the very fabric of our lives. Lord, I pray if there's someone in here today that they live life for their own benefit, maybe someone in here today who's openly mocked the ways of God. I pray Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin, draw them to yourself. And I pray that as our um, care volunteers are down front, I pray that they would come and, and find a way forward to experience new life in you. We love you. Help us to be a church that is a shelter for the lost and help us to share our fruit with those around us. It's in the name of Christ we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.
0: Here's this week's memory verse, Psalm 34, verse eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. An important spiritual practice is choosing daily the life you want to live. Spend time this week imagining a life planted on the riverbank, bearing fruit each season, like you see in Psalm 1:3. What would that look like for you? What would be different? Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts. Name at least one change that needs to be made. Then choose to live and pursue the joy of God. Coming up in our next episode, we'll continue the series, Summer in Psalms. To prepare, read Psalm 63. We're grateful you joined us for the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you during our next episode.